You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where hosts from the network and got friends. We're going to we just drop by. We talk all things geeky. Um, I hope you have ordered a drink from Ruby. Uh, when we're recording this, it's actually St. Patty's Day, so I have some nice Jameson to go along with this. Both Suzanne and I are wearing green. Woo-hoo. I'm your host, uh, Matthew Rushing, and with me for the first time in the 602 Club is Suzanne. How's it going, Suzanne? I'm doing great. Um, Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Happy. Yeah. Great to be here. And, and if you're listening in the future... Just use this as an excuse to have something to drink. Have um, a green beer. Exactly. Yeah, you just, you're, it's okay. We're going to give you a license for that. <laughs> so, well, I'm excited because one of the fun things about doing this show is that we get to talk about um, some new movies. We get to talk about old movies, old TV shows, old things. And this was something that when um, I thought about doing this show, I thought it would be really fun to talk about those movies that kind of, became something even after they they first came out in the theater and found a life of their own. And I think one of the most famous of, of those films is The Princess Bride, which didn't do great in its first run, but became a mega hit afterwards. And I think nobody was more shocked than, than the producers of that movie after they had seen the box office returns. And then years later, it became the movie that everybody can quote verbatim word for word absolutely so um and there are other movies out there like that that have kind of become what we know cult classics and the usual suspects the usual suspects which oh man what a great movie and of course really uh, kind of transported brian singer from you know, a mid-level director or somebody that everybody kind of wanted. And then, of course, he went on mm-hmm. to do, you know, X-Men, X-Men 2, uh, Days of Future Past, Superman Returns, which we'll talk about on the 602 Club sometime. Uh, we'll definitely get into the X-Men films as well. I mean, so, yeah, so many of these types of movies that we end up with. And one of those that I was thinking of was Dragonheart. And um, I remember, you know, this is back all the way, if you transport yourself back to 1996. Suzanne, what was your kind of first um, encounter with Dragonheart? And what kind of, when you remember back, what what was it about the project when you saw it coming out that was really making you gravitate towards it? Well, I've been always drawn to um, anything dealing with Arthurian legend or knights or dragons. And then having the plus of, of Dennis Quaid, fabulous actor, and the voice of Sean Connery. Can't get enough of that, ever. No, <laughs> no not at all. <laughs> Even if it's coming from a dragon. Hey, that works for me. The, all those factors just made it combine into a great movie for me to see opening day, 1996. I had to drag my boyfriend at the time with me because he was like, I want to see this. This looks really stupid. <laughs> Nothing blows up. Like, no, just sit, watch. It'll be awesome. Uh, so I just had to see it. I had to be first in line. So I take it from that that you are definitely somebody who enjoys the fantasy genre, um, 
and things of, of that ilk. Uh, what are some of your favorite fantasy um, films or book series or things like that? Um, fantasy film favorite, absolutely, without a doubt, Princess Bride. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, books would be The Mists of Avalon. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, haven't gotten much into um, The Hobbit or anything like that. Just mainly stick with knights and dueling and dragons and maidens. Right. Well, and there's plenty of that out there. I mean, there's just so many of that, those kind of things, especially even just with Arthurian legends, mm-hmm. you know, depending on uh, what version you read, whether it's T.H. White, Once and Future King, or you're mm-hmm. doing something by Stephen Lawhead or something like that. So there's just so much out there in that genre. I remember... Um, I remember seeing this and I already liked that kind of stuff, but the whole idea of them doing a, a movie with a dragon and it was going to be a main character and, you know, it was going to be a whole part of the movie, I think was a huge draw for me at that point. And, you know, kind of growing up with those kind of movies, honestly, this movie, have you ever seen Lady Hawk? Yes. Um, yeah, it, it honestly kind of reminds me of that with like not terrible music um you know just that kind of feeling you know those those kind of movies uh from the 80s and this movie fits kind of really well into that that milieu and and you know you've got great actors and everything like that so man i remember going to see this and just really really enjoying it and loving it because of everything that happened in the movie obviously Mm -hmm special effects blew me away at the time oh I mean, without a doubt was, without yeah a it doubt. was amazing and we'd never really seen anything like that I mean, we saw a I tiny mean, bit in jurassic park but that right. was like six yeah. and a half minutes of cgi whereas this exactly was over 20 minutes right well and characters that you know uh you know main characters are interacting with you know um mm-hmm. There was a scene where uh, Dennis Quaid's Bowen leans up against Draco the dragon. And I, m- I remember thinking last night, just as I was rewatching it, wow, that is fantastic because even now, it doesn't look like he's not leaning on the dragon. I know. Really well done. Very well done. So, yeah, the, I, all of that I think kind of blew my mind. The, I think the rest of it, too, you know, just the movie, it's it's fun there's there's lots of fun it's also very serious oh, yes. at times there's a lot going on but not and... too serious it has the comedy in there right yeah, yeah yeah i think i think of if anything now i i don't think it has the same nothing can be the princess bride but it really is within that same milieu like it's the same kind of type of film it's it's fantasy it's funny mm-hmm. and in fact the 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 writer of the film, you know, um, Patrick Reed Johnson. His first idea for the story was basically he wanted to do uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Dragon. He said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the idea of a dragon and a knight conning villages out of money. Well, it just... definitely plays off as totally a buddy movie. Yes. Who thought you would get a buddy cop movie with a dragon? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody, you know, ever thought that would, would happen, and and yet they really, really pull that off. Um, and then I think the most interesting thing about it 
when you first saw it was the dragon. And, you know, dragons in film are so important from Maleficent or Pete's uh-huh. dragon. Um, you know, the dragons have been a part of cinema for as long as cinema has, has been around. Uh, even and, Falcor. Oh, yeah. The Luck I mean, dragon. some of the... Exactly. Some of the most famous dragons out there. And in fact, uh, for you, I was, I was thinking about this. Where do you think, you know, Draco kind of fits for you if if you're thinking of, you know, famous dragons from from film? He would definitely be my number two. Okay. Okay. Only only just because Falcor from the Never Ending Story was just as growing up, he was everything I ever wanted in a dragon slash dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would still which, kill for a luck dragon these days. <laughs> which is so interesting because when they originally were going to do the film and they and they actually had a ginormous dragon puppet created mm. from Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Oh, and they were going to do this traditionally. They were, um, in fact, they were starting filming in England with the campfire scene, and everything started to go over budget. And lots of difficulties with that. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was they brought in a new director, and which was Rob Cohen. And he said, well, what if we did CGI the way they had done with the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? And obviously that changed the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, that's a hugely interesting thing to have happen. Well, I know they pretty much took the T-Rex and just altered mm-hmm. him. Yeah, and that became yeah. Draco. Yep, yep. And you can kind of tell in some ways that he has some of the same functionality. In fact, I was as I was watching it again last night, just thinking specifically on the dragon and, and looking at the CGI work, there are parts of him that are a little bit clunky, and obviously I think they would be refined much more if they mm-hmm. were to redo him. But at the same time, the character work, and this is the first time that ILM uses its character software, is really good. Like the articulation of the mouth, the face, oh, and everything. Definitely. Yeah, I don't. I, there's nothing about it that where I'm watching it and I'm be, I'm really being pulled out too much because of the work. I think it it still holds up, which just speaks to how good ILM is at what they do. And it has a lot of Connery's mannerisms. Yes, yes. Eyebrows, just the lip curl. Yes, it was all there. So it was all. To me, believably, yes, Sean Connery is in that dragon somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Like that and dragon think... ate Sean Connery, and he's talking <laughs> through. <laughs> he he's he's actually just puppeting the dragon from inside. Um, Sean's really talented, so um, that, that that's a really really funny visual of Sean Connery <laughs> controlling the dragon inside, like you know the guys inside Jabba the Hut. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to like, Jedi, Photoshop so. that somehow. Oh, gosh. That's really funny. But, yeah, I think you make a really great point about the fact that not only are they, they getting good articulation, but the animators did such a good job of watching Sean when he obviously was recording the lines, mm-hmm. of transferring everything that kind of makes Sean Connery. And so they just gave you a Sean Connery dragon. And, and which is exactly what this movie needs. Everyone needs one of those. <laughs> That's true. Although, you know, I'm thinking it's going to be kind of hard to fit in my apartment. Um, Maybe they can make a, they a no miniature dragon version. Policy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, and what was interesting, too, is that I remember watching the extras for The Desolation of Smaug mm-hmm. and Peter Jackson talking about this idea of, of when they were going to create Smaug and, and, you know, so many dragons have been done on screen and they even referenced Dragonheart. And they actually, the the scene in the unexpected journey, they, where, where they do the whole scene where the, the dragon is, is a, attacking Erebor and everything and you mm-hmm. see it that dragon actually has four feet um, he has four legs they were going to really? uh, have a four legged dragon um, and it's something that you won't notice now if you watch the the Blu-ray or the DVD versions because when they decided finally when they they nailed down to the design of Smaug and he didn't have four legs they went back and edited that out and oh. replaced it with the new dragon so that it matched um, but when it was originally released in theaters, it was a four-legged dragon. Um, wow, I had so, no idea about that. Yeah, so would looked would have looked much more like Draco, and the reason they took that out was because of something you even just have alluded to. Draco feels very much like a dog, like mm-hmm. um, in that sense, like he's supposed to. In this movie, it works completely. Um, whereas they didn't want that feeling in Desolation of Smaug. He needed to feel like. The I Ching of dragons, you know, like okay. this is where all other dragons kind of come from. So, yeah, but in this movie, I think it they just nailed everything that you'd want in that dragon to make it feel like that buddy cop movie. Mm-hmm. Turner and Hooch, but with a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, and one of the most uh, interesting things that I was picking up on rewatching the movie is that a lot like Middle-earth where the wizards are sent to kind of guide mankind and the races over Middle-earth, the Astari, uh, very much the dragons are in that same mold. They're like wizard dragons. Mm -hmm. Um, They're sent to guide humanity, which I thought was a really, really interesting thing. And, you know, they, they craft a whole universe here in this movie, which I was always surprised that we never got... And obviously, probably because of the the actual um, box office returns, but this movie kind of set itself up for really interesting sequels. I thought, or even a of, prequel, yeah, or a prequel to which, show how we got to this point. Exactly, exactly, which would have been really interesting. In fact, if you had gone back and kind of explored some of those Arthurian roots, which mm-hmm. would have been really interesting, or something like that, it would have been great. Um, now, it if people are listening, they're probably screaming at me. Well, they did have those direct sequels, and they had Dragonheart: A New Beginning, that direct to DVD. Um, and in fact, I was at Walmart just the other night. We were shopping for groceries, my wife and I. There's a brand new Dragonheart movie out there, Dragonheart Three. Is the Sorcerer's Curse? Sir Ben and Kingsley. Yes, yeah. So uh, apparently, Ben Kingsley is not above just taking a paycheck. I'd sign up for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have seen neither of those. Have you seen either? I have not those? seen either okay. one. I I am intrigued to see the third one just for Sir Ben Kingsley because that's another voice that I can't get enough of. And with him being involved, it's just, it's a really interesting thing, the fact that he would do it. So mm-hmm. it, it really just makes me wonder, like, how good is this movie? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, 
But uh, yeah, this movie did really kind of set it up. It, it was really creating a world that was, I thought, very fascinating. This whole idea that dragons have been around for a long time. You got these knights with the old code, um, and Bowen really kind of being the last one, and and the rest have all kind of followed the, you know, their their lust for power and all mm-hmm. that, and um, and of course dragons have gone by the wayside and even though at the beginning of the film they're very much there you kind of get the feeling like a lot of them are in hiding like they're they're not really a part of this world very much anymore and because they're, they're already becoming starting myth. to be slaughtered right yeah um and so yeah really really interesting thing to see and i, I thought it was really interesting too the idea that for dragons that they can live forever but only if they kind of earn that immortality. Basically, they earn their salvation through their actions, and they'll be able to become part of the star system that mm-hmm. we know as Draco in the sky. Um, and they, they, they live forever. I thought that was a really, really interesting thing. This movie is full of huge ideas like that, of you know what it means to, like, at least for dragons, go to he- all, all good dragons go to heaven, basically. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie for Pixar to do next. There you go. Yeah, forget how to train your dragon. All good dragons go to heaven. <laughs> but that was the, to me that was a really interesting thing because there's a lot of of really big themes in the film. Um, whether it's you know the idea of of Draco trying to kind of redeem himself um, from this mistake that he made. Mm-hmm of giving half of his heart to somebody who didn't deserve it and who has corrupted it and could potentially also live forever and his evil could live on forever. And then Draco knowing at the time that he gave his heart, he knew it was wrong to do so because right, that person was exactly. not deserving. Right. And and hoping that in some ways like he could over like his part of his heart could overcome that evil. That was really interesting. So the nature of good and evil in this movie is really a huge theme and and how it comes about, which I thought is just not something that a lot of movies even want to touch because we're so into that whole thing these days of everything being postmodern and it's all, we're all good, we're all bad, there's no real all Mm -hmm. good, there's no real all bad, you know, and and, and we've kind of thrown that out the window, but this movie is just really... Or even going further often everything is inherently evil right right well and then what's interesting in this movie is that i wondered if i wonder if they were almost saying that Ainan was all evil or if he had always just chosen to follow in his father's footsteps because that's what he thought was glorious and so watching the movie again last night i kind of came to the decision that it's not some sort of you know deterministic calvinistic kind of thing I got the feeling that Ainan, the, 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 the person that becomes king here, really decides he likes his father's way of doing things better, which is to rape and to pillage and, and to take power for himself and to be as, as, as powerful as possible. He doesn't want Bowen's code. He doesn't, want, he doesn't care about helping other people. Um, I thought that was, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I saw him as fully evil to begin with there is father is dying and the only thing he cares about is ripping that crown off his head yeah exactly uh and at the same time it it's it's almost it's not just um 
It's like he's learned exactly what his father was trying to teach him, mm-hmm. which is you you take what you can get, even no if you're taking what. it from me. Um, it almost <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much almost like they were two Sith lords, you know, and they were battling it out. That and, would be you know, cool. <laughs> you know, finally, you know, the the apprentice takes, oh, you know, and kills the master and becomes the master. And the finds emperor's an going down. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. The emperor went down, the king died in this uprising, and Ainan takes over. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. Two, on the other side, you know, Bowen with his, his ideas of honor and virtue and character... Mm-hmm. And upholding this code that, that there is, that there are these um, virtuous ideas to live by that we hold on to, which again is, um, it's in a lot of ways a very archaic idea even today. Lots of people just don't think that way, you know? Yeah, they I mean, don't take the time to care. Right, right. Um, you know, it, it's in a lot of ways today is, is much more of, well, whatever's right for you, and you make that decision. And... Mm-hmm. Or other people's feelings and right, ambitions yeah. and dreams are disposable. All that yes. matters is what you mm-hmm. want, what you yeah. can get. Another thing with um, good and evil, I thought it was interesting that Ainan was always shown wearing white, and mm-hmm. Bowen was mm-hmm. always shown wearing black. Total reverse of what we always think, good guys in white, bad guys in black. Yeah, that is a great, I didn't even think about that. But you never question the, the the idea of who each one of them is, mm-hmm. and and I like that decision too because it it kind of makes sense for somebody who's more kingly in the film to be wearing something that isn't practical. Mm-hmm. You know, white is not practical when you're riding a horse or or ever you know, when you don't have. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. It's really not practical ever. Eating ice today. cream, yeah, hot dog, spaghetti, uh, you know, hot fudge. Um, but yeah, that's a really great point, and so it, it really kind of accentuates, I in some ways, his evilness, like because he's wearing the color that you would suspect that that the good guy would be wearing, but he's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's really really cool. Just kind of thinking through um, some of the story elements for some people who who might not be as familiar or haven't seen the movie in a long time. So, the the king is leading his his band of evil men against a revolt that the peasants have started, and um, Bowen is has been training Einan, the king's son, in what he hopes is the way of him becoming a, a, a more noble man, a better man than his father. And as this rebellion happens, the king is is killed. And uh, Bowen and Einan re- arrive on the scene as this happens, um, and he takes the crown from his father's dying cold fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and is accidentally hit in the back by a young maiden who thrusts him up against a post, which jabs his heart and almost kills him until his mother, played by Julie Christie, takes him to a dragon and begs for his life. Dragon makes him promise to be a good person, and he says he will. And, of course, on the way home... He sees the old ruined Roman castle and says, I'm going to rebuild it. And everything just falls to pot from there. 
I kept looking to see if he had his fingers crossed when he made that promise. It's like, where are his hands? Are they are they crossed? Yeah. That's yeah. That would have been kind of funny if you had seen that he had his fingers crossed somewhere. Um, and and very much like that. He he is only doing this and only saying what people around him want to hear so he can get what he wants. And um, Bowen gets angry, thinks it's the dragon's fault, uh, the dragon's corruption of him. He, he felt like he had trained Einan well, although I don't really know how he got that feeling because anything that Einan said even before all this happened, when they're the very beginning of the movie, doesn't seem like a good kid. <laughs> no, no I, I think Bowen just had, had the best thoughts for him and, and seeing him grow up, he... He was, he had a pie in the sky ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Bowen ends up killing um, the second to the last dragon. Ends up in a battle with the last dragon, which is Draco, voiced by Sean Connery, and they form a partnership to earn money, con money out of people, and throughout the rest of the movie, <laughs> end up leading the rest uh, a new rebellion. Um, against the king and the the rest. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's it's just it's worth seeing. It's so good. But um, just kind of talking through some of the story elements. What were some of your favorite parts of the movie, or just um, things that this movie does that it, you can really remember and just always enjoy watching? Oh, without a doubt, uh, Brother Gilbert, played by Peter <laughs> Every line out of his mouth was gold. His delivery was amazing every time i saw him come on screen i just started giggling because i knew something great was about to happen that was excellent yeah he pete postweight was was just fantastic in the role um and the way that he talks about bowen oh he's the greatest dragon slayer in the world you can put your trust in no better man you know which is i've seen him kill one and a half dragons one and a half (laughs) dragons almost two oh yeah that was great i think my favorite scene every time i watch the movie is when bowen is inside draco's mouth and they're having the argument and he pulls out this you know a bone and like this bit of uh, armor and throws it out and draco's like oh thanks that's been killing me for weeks because he hasn't been able to get it out of his teeth i thought that was hilarious just that was good yeah just hysterical um well so we've talked a little bit just kind of uh, through the cast and i mean if if you guys haven't seen this movie it's been a while i think you might be surprised when you go back to watch it the amount of famous people that are in this movie i mean dennis quaid uh, david thulis who of course now for so many people is famous as professor lupin in Mm -hmm. the potter films um, also was just in the theory of everything Uh, of course sean connery needs no introduction as james bond um the magnificent julie christie how did they get julie christie for this i mean I totally forgot that she was in this movie. She was awesome. And in the small role that she had, she was great. Uh, Yeah. Iceland was a wonderful queen who was just led down the wrong path by what seemed to be a tyrannical husband who was also a dragon killer. Yes. It runs in the family. Yes. (laughs) 
Dinah Meyer, I already mentioned, uh, she was in Starship Troopers. And then, of course, uh, for Star Trek fans, she is in Star Trek Nemesis. Nemesis. Uh, and yeah, exactly. So she plays the Romulan commander, Denatra, uh, one of the uh, Romulan, the newer versions, the Romulan Bird of Prey. So uh, Jason Isaacs, obviously famous for his role in Harry Potter as well mm-hmm. with uh, Lucius Malfoy. And of course, he's also Captain Hook and pa- uh, Peter Pan. Uh, and then Pete Postwaite. I just this movie has so many great people. Um, I really like Dennis Quaid and just about everything I've seen him in. Oh yeah. But I love in this movie how earnest he is. Like it, it, he just really comes across as that character who completely believes in everything he's doing and um, just everything that he's saying. And it's it's so effortless from him. Mm-hmm. First movie I I can remember seeing him in was Inner Space, and after that I just followed him everywhere, from Inner Space to uh, Dragonheart, Switchback, Frequency. Everything that I found with him in it was just awesome, just because of him. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, man, Frequency, what a fantastic oh, movie! Such and- a good movie kind of a I just I feel like an underrated film people don't really talk about it but mm-hmm. I, man I remember when it came out it was so good him and Jim Caviezel uh, that that fantastic Garth Brooks song that's in the movie too I mm-hmm. mean oh man what a great way to encapsulate the the 90s and early 2000s right there I remember thinking I don't know if you thought this too David Thewlis when I first saw this movie you know as a teenager he is one of the most unattractive men I have ever seen and I feel like he's gotten actually a little bit better looking as he's gotten older especially not, in some of the roles that he's much. played but wow did they nail that casting or what is this king they shouldn't have kept showing him in profile because the nose doesn't help things well and it doesn't help the hair that they've given him this kind of like bangsy <laughs> yeah, and the then page like yeah, really, really, really bad page boy haircut. It's just, it's so hideous. I feel like you could have turned him upside down and had a mop, you know. Um, but he's, I mean, he's perfect spot on casting because of the way that that plays into his nastiness. Mm-hmm. So that it, it's almost as if it's just oozing out of his character. I just, I love that. I, I think, um, you know... It would have been so much more difficult to have somebody really nail this role who just didn't have his look. You know, everything about him and his acting, I think, Mm -hmm. all go to just say, I'm the most evil person you know. I don't care if I have to kill my mother. I don't have to kill my father. I don't care who I have to kill or who I have to keep alive. I just want power. Yeah, he totally creeped me out when he was trying to seduce Kara. It was like, oh, oh, go away. <laughs> oh, yeah, when he's like, oh, you brought my future bride. And no. I was like, oh, I'm crawling out of my skin right now. <laughs> That's just disgusting. Um, well, uh, Sean Connery as uh, as Draco, I think, was, you know, another just a fantastic casting choice. Because it automatically brings gravitas to the role. Mm-hmm. Well, that and if a dragon was to ever speak, that's the only voice that he could have. 
Nobody right. else could do that. Nobody else could be a dragon. Right. It needs to sound like Sean Connery or like Patrick Stewart or something oh. like that. It you know, it yeah, needs to sound like one of those guys. Yeah. Um you know, I think even maybe David uh, Tennant could pull it off. You know, something mm-hmm. like that. It, basically, what we're saying is, is it needs to sound like it's from the British Isles. <laughs> um, and obviously, that's the case because Benedict Cumberbatch has played yeah, Smaug, and he is fantastic in the role. Mm-hmm. So there's just something about British men that encapsulates dragon. Well, when you think dragons, you automatically think the British Isles anyway just from all mm-hmm. the stories mm-hmm. and all the legends that's where they mod- mostly all were I mean you had the uh, occasional ones that are mentioned in Chinese legends but not as much as in England right I mean nothing compared to the great stone dragon that is Eddie Murphy from Mulan <laughs> I mean <laughs> I am the great stone dragon <laughs> Oh, what a great movie. Uh, I was more of a fan of fantastic dragon. Yeah, so. um, Yeah, and I mean, gosh, again, uh, Julie Christie, uh, just really fantastic. Because, again, she doesn't have a ton of scenes. But what she does have, because she's Julie Christie and and because of, again, kind of just her gravitas, she's bringing that all to the role. Mm -hmm. And so... You don't have to do a ton of explaining or anything. So, yeah, I really, really love her in the film. And the way she played Iceland it reminded me a lot of um, Catherine Hepburn. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, oh. I can't think of the name of the movie. Oh, my gosh. That's oh, uh, Lady and uh, – is it uh, Lion and Winter? Thank you. With uh, – was it with Sean Connery he's uh, playing? Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Okay, okay. Okay, yep, I can under- – yeah, that makes complete sense. Just the way um, she carried herself and everything mm-hmm. was just very, very regal. Uh, well, Dynamire was brand new, really, at this point. What did you think of her since this is kind of her first major role? When she came on screen, I was like, she's on 90210. <laughs> and I remember saying that in the theater. I was like, oh, I don't like her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she she did very well in this film, very well. I was quite surprised by the end i really liked her character yeah i think um i think that that is probably one of those things i was a little bit surprised actually after this movie that we didn't kind of see her in more things actually um because yeah, the know, next I just, I f- thing was on was starship troopers you're right suzanne her very next film was was uh, starship troopers and of course that was i mean if, if you haven't seen it it's <laughs> it's a ridiculously fun movie that's for sure but you know those were two of her really really big things and then she really isn't in a ton more that's gonna say the next you know, thing i remember after that was saw mm-hmm. and that's oh, yeah, many years yeah. later well and and for me like not a Saul guy. Don't really like those kind of movies. So I think the next time that I saw her, and I remember one of the very few things about Nemesis that make me like kind of want to scream out in a the theater. I was like, I know her. <laughs> you know. Other than that, 
you know, she she hasn't really been uh, in, in, you know, a ton of big things. I mean, obviously, the Saw films um, mm-hmm. for, for people who really enjoy that kind of thing. And then she's done some TV work and stuff like that. But I was always surprised that she didn't find a, a place because, you know, kind of being a, a rough and tumble girl in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, um, I thought it was great. You know, and, and what was really nice about her character as well is, is she was a strong female character you know she wasn't defined by any of her relationships with any of these men really um and and yet i it none of it felt forced into the story no it didn't and and being a strong female character at that point in time is something special because that wasn't happening quite yet right exactly well and and again i mean you know, today even, we might kind of feel like um, sometimes it's kind of shoved into a film, mm-hmm. whereas here it just feels so natural, you know, because of the way that they've used her character in the story. You yeah, know? and she didn't have to go over the top like um, Linda Hamilton T2. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And, and, and I mean, you know, she doesn't uh, have to be the main person in the film, like say, uh, you know, a, um, a Katniss or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and what's great too is that they've actually logically built into the story you know she has a vendetta against this king because of what you know happened to her father and that kind of stuff and so um, and she's the one who's really trying to motivate people to be a part of this rebellion against Mm -hmm. Einan so yeah very very well done like you said just at a time where this just didn't happen um, and so I think uh, it's it's definitely something that's a plus for the movie. And it almost seems like I don't even know if they were thinking about that at this point at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they just wrote it and it came off perfectly. Jason Isaacs doesn't have a ton to do <laughs> other than drop his drawers at one point, um, which was was really funny. Uh, that and, and just reminded me how young he was oh, at yeah. this point. At the, uh, just crazy how young he was. And so, yeah, great casting all around in this movie and, and something really well done. What did you think in, in general, too, about the, the production element of the movie? Um, you know, because... I think a lot of us, if when we go, if you hadn't seen this movie, you know, then in 1996, we've been very spoiled with what production looks like for fantasy film mm-hmm. or um, a fantasy world, whether it's um, a Harry Potter type world, whether it's the Lord of the Rings world, um, any of those kind of things. How did you feel about what this movie is able to accomplish that way? Well, back in the day, I thought it was amazing. Really, I could not believe that they were able to do what they did with computers. Looking back, it actually still holds up pretty well. There aren't a lot of points where I'm like, oh gosh, I wish they could go back and fix that. There aren't too many of those, maybe three, four. It is, it's really, I mean, you can tell, I mean, how they do tons of location work Mm -hmm. here. um, And I think... All of it looks very good. I mean, th- when you think of of creating a movie like this, you know, you are trying to create a, a, a world and and make it feel realistic for the for the viewers. And I think they do a really good job of that. Um, the places that you know, if we were thinking back from today, it lacks in that detail value, whether it's the weapons or 
any of those kind of things. All of those, to me, nowadays, they feel very much more... We just pulled these out of like an old, you know, like Earl Flynn type of film or something <laughs> like that. You know, we we borrowed these from Earl Flynn's Robin Hood, these swords and stuff. Um, whereas today, you know, they craft real swords and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But other than that, yeah, even the CGI work, everything here, I think, still feels really good. And, and you can tell that this is the first major character creation. And yet at the same time, you're not really lost in that. Like you're not you're, yeah. you're not pulled out of the film. Um, and the actors think, did such a wonderful yes, job. Yes, interacting with something that wasn't there, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. able to get sight lines and and yep, be talking to Draco and looking in his eyes, even though you know in reality he's not there. I think that's really a testament to Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really nailing that and making you feel like Draco is alive. Um, and honestly, obviously, he, you know, it helps that he, what's talking back to him is Sean Connery's voice. But the fact that, you know, anytime that he's standing next to him or he's talking to him or they're interacting, you get this feeling of realism from Dennis Quaid. You never feel like the guy is talking to a red ball on a stick, <laughs> which is what he was talking to. Yes. You know, I, that's impressive. That Most does say impressive. a lot. Well, last thing that we should probably cover is this, and that is the music. Um, Randy Edelman created the the score for this film, and what's funny is that even if you haven't seen Dragonheart, you have probably heard the theme before. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in pretty much everything. Ah, gosh. Commercials, TV shows, you name it. Yeah, some of the most famous um, trailers that it was used in, especially at the time and beyond, were uh, Two Brothers, Mulan, Seven Years in Tibet. It's been in plenty others. Um, I mean, just commercials, all that kind of thing. Um, but what's so nice about it is that, and what I miss so much sometimes today's soundtracks, is that it has such a beautiful theme. Mm-hmm. You know, um and you find yourself kind of humming it later on. And sometimes, you know, in today's films, I really miss, um, you know, and, and instead of that atmospheric music we get is a distinct and beautiful theme that kind of works its way through the entire film and gets replayed with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and very much, you know, the James Warder, John Williams, oh, all John of those Williams. guys where they're really crafting something specific for the character. Yeah. Uh, it really works well in this movie. Oh, definitely. A lot of times in today's movies, the music is just forgettable. To me, it's an afterthought. It's like, uh, it was there, but I don't remember anything about right. it. Right, right. Do you think that's something that we, growing up, uh, you know, in um, the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, having all those movies, especially starting with, you know, Jaws onwards mm-hmm. with John Williams and, and Lucas really in the end revolutionizing what we thought of as, as soundtracks again to go back to that kind of symphonic score that creates those themes um, do you think we were just really um, spoiled for the fact that we got you know these amazing guys creating these incredible soundtracks and that's just not in vogue anymore we were definitely lucky 
totally lucky. I wish John Williams was doing more nowadays just because I am such a fan of his work and I think so many people are missing out. Younger generations are missing the beauty of his music and what he's able to create just with music. It makes me glad that there are filmmakers out there who want to use somebody like uh, Michael Giacchino, mm-hmm. um, you know, who did the the two Star Trek films. He's done uh, lots of other. He did Up, which has some amazing oh, music. Makes me you know, cry. Um, so, so the guy, yeah, the guys like that who really understand this idea of themes, and I think really even if they weren't trained specifically by somebody like a Williams or a James Horner. They have studied under them mm-hmm. for all those years and, and understand what music can do. And that's not to, to, to downplay anything that can happen in, um, you know, say a Hans Zimmer score or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he gave us Gladiator and um, Pirates of the Caribbean, which is pretty much the same soundtrack, just altered slightly. <laughs> um, but two great soundtracks, you know, those kind of things. Or in Man of Steel, I really enjoyed you know, but there's just something to be said for the soaring themes that we hear in, say, like a Star Wars or even here in Dragonheart. I really love this music oh, and yeah. I love being able to, you know, uh, pull out the soundtrack anytime on my, you know, my iPhone or, or at work and on iTunes and just sit back and, and really be able to kind of swim in those, those themes that he created. It's really well done. So if you don't have the soundtrack, you're a great soundtrack fan. Definitely uh, go pick this it. one up. Go find it somewhere. I, you know, I don't even know if it's available. Uh, I didn't even check. I think I'm pretty sure it's available on iTunes. Okay, there you go. So easy peasy for you guys. So, well, Suzanne, what, final thoughts and and uh, how would you uh, say retrospectively now, looking back at everything, what would you still rate Dragonheart? Ugh. In the genre of fantasy and dragons and Arthurian legend, it is definitely one of my top three, without a doubt. I just watched it again yesterday and today, just because I had had to see it a second time. Each time it makes me cry. Even though I know it's gonna happen, I cry <laughs> every single time. It's like, this time I know I won't cry, I know I, oh, I won't cry. But yeah, I just can't get enough of this film. The cast, the music, the story, it's it all resonates with me. It's it's a keeper. I think that's yeah, that's definitely a, a great it's a great legacy for any film to have, you know, that after so many years, you know, it's been over, you know, twenty years. Oh, don't say now. that. Don't say almost, that. Yeah. Uh almost twenty five years next year. Um <gasps> But yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, it makes me feel so old. How can that be? I'm only twenty. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would you? What do you think? You, you know, if you had to give a rating, what would you rate Dragonheart? It's an eight out of ten. Very nice. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it's up there, but there's always room for improvement. Yes. Yes. A little more definitely. Sean Connery. Just a little bit. A little more, more Brother Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's something that's really cool. Um, when we we were talking about earlier, you know, um, Jurassic Park dinosaurs are there for six, seven minutes mm-hmm. that are CG. Um, Draco is in the film for about twenty eight minutes, yeah. uh, and so obviously pushing the limitations of, of what was possible. I think even just for computing power, 
when you think about all the processing it would have taken to create a character like that and all the would have people. been astronomical so um but fantastic work um gosh i i really just i really enjoy this movie i still enjoy watching it you know i um I think it's it is a lot of fun. I also really think that it's not too violent for kids. No, um, you know I I think you know you can have um, uh, an eight nine year old watch this with you, and I also think what's great about this movie that just doesn't happen a lot today is it's great for the family to sit down and and watch it and then have some great things to talk about oh, too. You know because of the themes we talked about, a good and evil and. And that kind of stuff, and being able to, um, you know, discuss that kind of thing with kids. Uh, it's just that's those are the things that make movies last, and um, it, that you can keep coming back to and feel like you're going to learn something new from it, or be reminded of something that you shouldn't forget very often. <laughs> uh, and Dragonheart does a good job of kind of reminding us of, of those kind of things. And so, I think because of that, I I give this um, seven out of ten. Um, to go with your scale because I, I definitely think that on a whole I think it still holds up for for people for kids these days it has enough action has enough humor um, it's not overdone it's not overblown but it also has some heart and some things to talk about that some movies today just might forget yeah so well, it has been a blast talking about Dragonheart today, but it is not the only thing that we have been talking about this past week here on Trek FM. So here is a quick look at some of those other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity, and and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's that's he would approve. Spock would approve. And um, you know, he'd say, "You humans, why do you feel you need to do this?" But but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like I'm expecting Ricardo Martaban to like walk around the corner and be like, "Captain Picard, welcome." This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually, you want to be able to capture it or isolate one but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps you know so it really does seem like a conundrum of okay how do we take this down you know this minefield they are the triples of war to the journey one guy's like why don't we just write better stories for wesley and then the lead writer's like you out now <laughs> the ready room Riker's all pissed because he can't prop <laughs> his leg up with no gravity he tries though. He tries. He's trying. I can I can picture it. He's but got then the just, momentum makes him somersault. Which really just makes him yeah, look spread he's, he's eagle. Going in circles. He's spinning. <laughs> Commentary, Trek Stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this and... 
my guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on and maybe something that happens in Age of Ultron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You will find us wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, if you're an Apple user, if you hit the subscribe button, that helps us out a lot. Also, giving us star ratings and reviews. Now, when we talk about these things, I think you're probably thinking that I'm just crazy. But I'm not. Subscription and star ratings and reviews, those really help us raise in the iTunes rankings, which... For those of you who don't know, Apple is the place where over 80% of people get their podcasts. And because of that, the higher that we are in those rankings, the more people will find Trek FM. And I know you guys want to help that happen. So just do those things for us. We really appreciate it. But the best thing is, is if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file, or you can grab the RSS link as well on the website. Well, Suzanne, I'm so glad you got a chance to stop by here at the 602. You are, of course, welcome back anytime. Fabulous. But yeah, tell everybody where they can find you online. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Suzanne Abbott, or stop by the Trek FM Facebook page um, Monday through Friday. I post a question of the day. That's right, fans. If you have ever been to the Trek FM Facebook page, Suzanne is the one that runs that for us and does a marvelous job of making sure all of our shows get posted there, those fantastic questions get posted. So um, really thank you for all your hard work, Suzanne, because it looks great. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to do it. Well, another way that you can help keep all of the shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you will find the current goals and the different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. Just want to say a huge thank you to all of you that are already supporting us on Patreon. It means so much. We are a listener-supported network, and so without you guys, we can't make this happen. Um, you can get some great perks. They include access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on the content development team, more. We really appreciate all your support, guys, um, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I want to get a quick shout out there to Kessel Junkie. That's right. That's our own John Mills. He gave us a great review on iTunes. Five stars. Really appreciate that, John. It means so much to me. In fact, I love uh, whenever you're here on the show. I've got Ruby keeping a drink cold for you. We'd also like to say a special thanks to our associate producer, Norman C. Lau, and his support of the network and the 602 Club. He's uh, on Twitter, at Norman Lau, and of course a big supporter of the Star Trek Axanar Project can be found on their official Facebook page as well as the Babel Conference, and he's a huge supporter of the network on Patreon. Plus, you get to hear him every week on Warp 5 as the host. We'd also like to thank Kenneth Tripp for his support of the network and being an associate producer on the 602 Club as well. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm contact. 
you can leave a voicemail for us. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And of course, we have the listeners only discussion group. It's a fantastic place to talk about all things geeky with what we talk about here on the 602 Club, plus everything Star Trek. From all of our shows to whatever's happening, this is the best place. Just type the Babel Conference in the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I also do The Orb with Christopher Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively. I'm on Literary Treks with Dan where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interview authors, fantastic place guys um if you're missing the 24th century universe there's no better place to get it than the books and the comics of star trek and of course my own personal blog at 42 lifeinbetween.wordpress.com well thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear 